This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumoulin. And I'm Yannick Mayen. And I think my head with her tonight because this topic seems complex. So what is our topic for tonight, Yannick? Platform-supported Ruby implementations. Hmm. We're back on our programming, programmer, whatever, like all of the nerdy stuff regarding programming. That's super nice. But before we start, I think we have some follow-up. Yeah, just one point on follow-up uh, about episode 82 on Nintendo Mobile Games. Uh, I mentioned a system in Fire Emblem Heroes which allowed you to gradually raise the odds of you getting the higher rarity heroes through the game's gotcha system as you were getting non-high uh, rarity heroes. Um, I also mentioned that there was a Japanese law which put a spending cap of roughly $300 uh, in gacha games, so if you didn't get the highest rarity tier items to drop in the game after spending $300, you were given a menu of options and you could select one and get it guaranteed. Uh, what I forgot to mention about this sort of weird relation between the law and the system is that Nintendo's implementation also benefits free-to-play players. So the law itself only considers the amount you spend for premium currency in real money, which means you have to spend $300 worth of real money to get uh, the guaranteed uh, high rarity drop. You can't spend $300 worth of in-game premium currency you got for free. That doesn't count through the, uh, for the law. But Nintendo's implementation doesn't distinguish, doesn't distinguish between free... Uh, well, premium currency you were given for free by playing the game versus uh, premium currency you buy with real money. So... Really, like, even though Nintendo rewards you with, like, a free five-star every, let's say, 150 gacha pulls you do, really, if you're not spending money, you're still going to get it after 150 gacha pulls instead of needing to spend $300 for the law to apply in Japan. Yeah, it does mean that if you're unlucky as a free-to-play like play user without investing money in the game, you might just encounter a that different limit on Nintendo games compared to what the law says. Yeah, basically, it's... the Nintendo's mobile games are more rewarding to free-to-play players than uh, the competition, uh, just because they don't want to be as bad as the rest of the industry. Um, I'm also going to try to link in the show notes a comic uh, from Fate Grand Order, which is another big gacha game in uh, Japan. Uh, they've also got an English translation, and recently they've started translating the comic that releases next to the game. And it's basically about gacha addiction, except from the point of view of FGO players, which are crazy people. Uh, I have a lot of friends who play FGO, and they're crazy. Uh, FGO is known in Japan for having some of the lowest uh, high rarity tier drop rates in all gacha games, so you might you wonder why people play this game, but and I don't really understand it, but they do anyway, because I guess they're really horny. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be a link to that in the show notes if I can find it in time for the show's release. Because it is actually very hilarious and reminded me a lot of the discussion we had on the last episode. And that's it for my follow-up. Good, so let's start with your topic. Sure. So, uh, platform-supported Ruby implementations is a very vague term. Um, it is super vague. When you introduced to me, it was like, what? Yeah, uh, everyone I have mentioned it to has sort of said, like, what the hell does that even mean? Uh, <laughs> and it's it's going to be very uh, programmer-centric episode uh, of the show. However, I will try to make things simple enough for people who aren't programmers to understand and potentially learn something in the process as well. But uh, let's be honest, it's been a while since we have the, had the programmer-centric episode, so we were kind of due for it. Not overdue, but just due. I mean, I try not to have two gaming episodes back-to-back, so I've been tr- saving this topic for one of those weeks, and since we talked about mobile games last week, I thought this week is uh, is going to be great. So, 10 years ago, the Ruby community was starting to take off. Ruby is a programming language that was first released in 1995, but sort of remained an obscure thing until the year 2000. And it was written by Yukihiro Matsumoto, uh, it's kind of like if Perl was written with Japanese minimalist design sensitivities. Uh, Perl gets a lot of shit in the uh, programming community because they say Perl is only a language that you write but then never read again because it is undecipherable hieroglyphics. Uh, and that is actually sort of hyperbole. It's just because there are so many ways you can express stuff as regular expressions in Perl, which 
are a bunch of jumbled up characters uh, that make no sense unless you know the rules of how to read them. Uh, but if you don't rely heavily on regex, uh, literals all over your code, Perl is actually an okay language. Uh, it, I think it's a little bit inelegant uh, for these days, but I don't want to get into that debate. That's another episode. Uh, in Japan, Ruby was more popular than the Python programming language as soon as the year 2000. Um, but outside of Japan, very little was known about Ruby until the publication of the book Programming Ruby in September of 2000. Um, so it was really like this, uh, we call it sort of Galapagos syndrome where uh, something gets developed inside of an insular nation like Japan and sort of never really makes its way out. But someone out there, uh, the author of Programming Ruby, whose name I am unfortunately forgetting right now, uh, went out to Japan, learned Ruby, and then was like, this language is awesome, I need to share it with the rest of the world. Um, and so that sort of happened, uh, and adoption didn't really pick up until 2005-2007, when the golden age of Ruby on Rails came. So Ruby on Rails, you've probably heard of it if you're in web development circles, it is a MVC-based web framework for the Ruby language that was written by 37Signals. Uh, 37Signals did uh, Backpack. Uh, I think they discontinued Backpack. Uh, they did Basecamp. They did a bunch of really popular productivity applications that were the hot thing in the early 2000s. And Ruby on Rails was super innovative. Uh, it pioneered a lot of things that weren't the norm in web frameworks at the time. So Ruby on Rails, when you installed it on your computer... Uh, it was one of the first frameworks to basically say, we have sane defaults and opinionated choices that we prioritize over uh, modularity and configuration. Um, it also had lots of code generation. Uh, so you could say, oh, I want to create a blog post in my um, database. And you could run one script and it would create the blog post and the data, well, create the blog post tables in your database so that it could hold them. It would create a form for you to add a blog post. It would create an action to delete a blog post. It would create the thing to view a blog post. So it would scaffold all of this common stuff that you have to write a lot for all of your data entities in your application for you so you didn't have to do it. Uh, there's this term we use in programming called CRUD, create, remove, update, delete. Uh, those are sort of the base operations that you have to do on most uh, data entities you have to deal with. And Ruby on Rails basically said... Type one line into the command line, and we will not only create your tables, but we will also create uh, those CRUD actions for you, so you have even less work to do as a web developer. I love that you're using uh, a blog as an example to explain Ruby and Rails because of the big gag about it was that it's super easy to create a blog. Everybody's creating blogs <laughs> with it. <laughs> yeah, so for people who weren't around in 2005-2007, uh, there was basically like every tutorial about Rails on the web was, how do I create a blog with Ruby on Rails? And everyone was typing basically the same exact commands into their command line in all of these tutorials. Uh, nowadays, uh, in the JavaScript era, uh, we have evolved beyond blogs. We are now all making to-do apps, which look exactly the same. Um, <laughs> but like, it seems that everybody converges on one type of application for every major step in web technology. 2005, 2007, blogs were really hot, so they did blogs. Nowadays, we are all trying to get shit done, so we have to-do lists. But it's really funny that, anyway, it became sort of a meme during that point. Especially to people outside of Ruby on Rails who were like, can you actually use Ruby on Rails to do anything other than a blog? And it turns out that yes, except it was very hard to find information on how to do so for a while. A lot of people were coming to the Ruby language less because they were actually interested in the language itself, but more because they wanted to develop Rails applications. And Rails had a significant impact on web frameworks across all languages because it innovated with a lot of ideas, and those ideas sort of uh, trickled throughout the ecosystem and made its way to uh, Python with the Django framework, eventually Node.js with the Express framework, and all that stuff. 2005-2007 was also the years when Ruby on Rails did not scale, but that is another podcast. Um, but there were lots of oh, good jokes. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're not talking about Twitter using it and having the failwell all the time? Yeah, until they switched to Scala, which is, yeah, good times, good times. Classic, classic Twitter memes. Um, so that huge spike of interest in the Ruby language, and especially the spike in interest in Ruby on Rails, caused some alternate implementations of the language to pop up, and that's what we're going to be concentrating on today. Uh, so we're going to be talking about three implementations 
Uh, and, well, you'll see. Uh, the first is JRuby, the second is IronRuby, and the third is MacRuby. And we will be doing them in those order. Um, because we're working towards something. Uh, so JRuby was technically born all the way back in 2001. JRuby is an implementation of Ruby on the Java Virtual Machine, as the J implies. They basically took the code from Ruby 1.6, which is an old-ass version of Ruby that is no longer relevant, and they straight-ported it to Java. Um, and that was just, like, the first version. Um, but the project was never really taken seriously and given real backing until the release of Ruby 1.8.6 in the Rails Golden Age. This was, like, the version of Ruby that, like, Rails really became huge on. Uh, and they basically decided, okay... We're going to get together, update the project so that it passes 1.8.6 test suites. And basically that is when the current core team of the project was formed and they have been developing it ever since. Uh, and since then, the JRuby project has been chasing and keeping up to date with the reference implementation of the language. Uh, in case I slip up in the future, uh, the actual official version of Ruby is called MRI, the Mats Ruby Interpreter. Uh, so if I say MRI, uh, you know that I mean the real Ruby. And JRuby is never really far behind MRI. There was one big gap, uh, when Ruby 2.0 came out, where there were big migration changes that needed to be made, because Ruby 2.0 is a significant change from the Ruby 1.0, um, and I think it took them three years to actually fully complete the migration, which was a long time, but they have done it now, and now they are keeping up again with uh, MRI's changes. And one of the impressive things about JRuby is that very quickly its performance began to, began to surpass that of the official Ruby implementation. Uh, just because the JVM, well, first of all, MRI was mostly written by Matts, uh, so you have, like, this one-person developer versus, like, 15 years of Sun Microsystems developers working on the JVM every day, it sort of makes sense that the JVM is better optimized for certain things, um, especially server-side software, because that is where it excels, really. Being built on the JVM just got it free performance for a lot of things. Um, and, of course, being built atop the JVM has had some interesting side effects. So one of the things you can do in JRuby is just import Java libraries and use them as if they were Ruby code. Now, you might say, yeah, there are some different conventions uh, that aren't exactly the same in how you name things in Java and how you name things in Ruby, uh, and this is true. However, the conventions are generally observed in Java, much like they are in something like Objective-C, where there is a strong culture that encourages certain patterns be used all over the place. Um, and JRuby has a layer which can automatically translate idiomatic Java to idiomatic Ruby, which is really nice. A bit like the the Swift bridging that is doing from Objective C. So if you write your Objective C in a certain way, it does get itself bridged automatically to the Swift coding standards. Yeah. Um, the second big advantage of being on the JVM is a sneaky deployment scenario for companies that have Java enterprise servers. You can write a JRuby application and use Rails and do all of your fancy Ruby stuff that you wish you could do on your stupid, boring Java job and then you can run a command in your terminal called Warbler, which takes JRuby, takes uh, Rails, takes your entire application, dumps everything into a jar file that you can upload to a Java enterprise server, and your sysadmin will not be able to tell the difference between a normal Java application, and congratulations, you've sneaked a Ruby application into deployment at your work. Uh, so a lot of people actually really like this because it allowed them to easily deploy Ruby applications in a Java Enterprise environment where they could never actually convince anyone to make changes to their server infrastructure to actually handle Ruby applications. Um, another great thing is it's easy to embed a JRuby interpreter into any Java application in order to make it scriptable. Uh, this is very analogous to Lua in the C world. If you're making a C application and you want to make it scriptable, embedding Lua is a couple lines of code and you've got a scriptable engine right there. Uh, and JRuby is much the same way for Java. And of course, as the JVM continues to get more features to support dynamic languages correctly, uh, JRuby performance keeps benefiting from these changes. Uh, there was a big project called the DaVinci Machine uh, a couple of years ago where basically Java was saying, 
There's more and more demand for dynamic languages on the JVM. We're going to put big investments into even adding new bytecode opcodes um, to the JVM to be able to optimize for certain uh, dynamic languages better. And uh, I think one or two versions ago, JRuby started using these things and saw another big performance boost. So as the JVM keeps getting better, and of course it is outpacing MRI's ability to become a better uh, virtual machine, JRuby becomes more performant. Uh, naturally, there are some compatibility issues. So in Ruby, uh, especially on Ruby Gems, which is the central repository of third-party packages, uh, you can have extensions which are written in C that automatically get compiled at install time for whatever the target platform is. However, when you're running on the JVM, uh, your C extension sort of doesn't work. Um, so there are a couple solutions to this. Uh, one is you can install a JRuby-compatible variant of a Ruby gem, which substitutes uh, the C extension for something else. Uh, it could be substituting the library that you depend on with one that's written in pure Ruby, because that's not an issue. If it's all in Ruby, then JRuby can just interpret it and it'll work. Or you can also rely on a Java library that does the same thing behind the scenes. Uh, this is really popular for database adapters, because usually database adapters try to be written in C to be super performant, uh, but there are also really good Java database adapters that can be adapted into Ruby uh, to be compatible with JRuby. And if you're worried that you're just going to be writing wrappers around Java libraries for everything to keep your applications compatible, uh, JRuby compatible packages for the most popular dependencies in the Ruby world tend to be maintained by the JRuby core team. And they are increasingly trying to get JRuby into continuous integration systems for all of the big Ruby packages so that they can see incompatibilities in real time, which is great. Yeah, so to transfer kind of the ownership of maintaining compatibility with JRuby to the maintainer of this library and not just the JRuby people themselves. Yeah, but some people are just never going to care about JRuby. Like, some developers just actively don't care. And in those cases, JRuby core team, if they find that the project is actually important enough to the survival of JRuby that it needs to be maintained, they will do it themselves. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, so that's it for JRuby. Are you ready to move on to Iron Ruby? Yeah, it's. I wonder on which. Maybe I'm spoiling a bit the Euro episode, but are they all running on virtual machines, like on VMs? Yeah, yeah, they're they're all running on different virtual machines than the standard Ruby virtual machine. Hmm. So I wonder what this. Uh, I guess Iron VM is. Well, you're going to find out right now. Uh, so Iron Ruby is not unlike JRuby, except instead of targeting the Java virtual machine, it targets the .NET Common Language Runtime. Ooh, that now makes sense. Yeah. Uh, in practical terms, this means that you could call into all of the .NET framework and third-party libraries for .NET code within a Ruby environment. Um, now, what makes this sort of unique is the target environments that they had in mind when developing Iron Ruby. So the first is cross-platform com command line. Uh, so you can run Iron Ruby against uh, plain old .NET in the command line on Windows, or if you're on another platform, you can run it via Mono, and it has always worked great in that context. Um, it is the least exciting of the context because it is the most standard Ruby thing you can do. Uh, the other two are a little bit fucked up. Uh, the first is in Silverlight as a plugin applet. So if you forgot what Microsoft Silverlight was, Microsoft Silverlight was Microsoft's attempt at completing, uh, attempt at competing against Flash, except all of that was based on .NET technologies and the WPF view framework, which they tried to migrate Windows developers to during the Vista days. Uh, so it sort of gives you a time frame for when Iron Ruby was made around the release of Windows Vista. Of course, this was very awkwardly timed because the release of the iPhone also started the countdown clock for the death of browser plugins. Uh, and it was right around the time Iron Ruby came out. Nobody wanted to install another browser plugin that didn't seem to offer anything else that Flash couldn't do already, because then what's the point to the user? They don't see the difference between ActionScript and .NET languages. They just see two plugins that do exactly the same thing, and they do not give a shit about what the intricacies of the thing is, even though Silverlight generally did perform better than Flash because Flash is trash. There was another... Very unique context, and this, I think, is one of the biggest features of Iron Ruby, which unfortunately will never take off, and that is in Silverlight as a script tag. 
So this is a much more ambitious project, and it was an attempt at allowing Ruby web developers to share code between their backend and their frontend by allowing the use of Ruby inside of script tags in the browser. So much like how you would use uh, JavaScript in a web page, you could just have open your script tag type, uh, I think it was script Ruby or whatever, and you could start ma manipulating the web page's DOM through an object that is very similar to the one you would have in JavaScript and just do everything in Ruby syntax instead. That's kind of an impressive goal to have, to be honest. Yeah, there's just one big problem with the timing of this, of course, which is what was happening in parallel to this is Google's Google Chrome's V8 engine had just gotten around to running in the command line. And you can sort of see where this is headed. That would eventually morph into the beast that is Node.js. <laughs> and it yeah. turns out that it's actually a lot easier to tell people, hey, why don't you use the client-side language to develop the server side of your application instead of getting everyone to download Silverlight and then using Ruby on your client side. Uh, so yeah, there, that sort of happened, and it was too bad. Uh, it was also technically possible to use Iron Ruby for Windows Forms applications or WPF applications, but in practice, nobody did it because both frameworks are gross to work with, especially when you don't have uh, the support of something like Interface Builder or Visual Studio's UI uh, designer. When you have to lay out your UI controls in text, not everyone is going to get on board with that. Compatibility was never quite as good as JRuby, unfortunately, and interest was never quite there. So much of the story around Iron Ruby revolved around Microsoft Silverlight, which, of course, Microsoft was having a hard time selling that to their existing developer audience, to say nothing of curious onlookers from the Ruby community. And later in the project's lifespan, people were trying to push Iron Ruby to .NET developers, but the problem is Iron Ruby was never mature enough as a project to get adopted in the more technologically conservative environments where .NET stacks tend to be used, so it just never got a user base. Now, this is where we get to the sad part. Iron Ruby is lost to time. Uh, so Iron Ruby was developed as a, a transitional period for the .NET framework. Basically, like the very early versions of the common language runtime, which is the virtual machine the .NET runs on, had no support for dynamic language features at all. And this was a problem for trying to implement uh, Iron Ruby. Um, but they were slowly adding features into the CLR that were going to be able to accommodate this. So Iron Ruby, in practice, had two implementations. There was one that targeted CLR2. Uh, CLR2 had no support for dynamic types, no dynamic method dispatch. Uh, you had to install an extra layer on top of the CLR called the DLR uh, that would provide all of that stuff. And there was another implementation which targeted CLR4, which is the current version of the .NET runtime, which is still being used today. And CLR4 basically said, we're going to introduce a bunch of new features to C-sharp that are going to be dynamic features that everybody is going to love. But we don't want to reinvent the wheel, so we're going to take the DLR project and we're just going to dump it straight into the CLR. And that's what they did. So there were those two implementations. CLR2 version had slightly limited uh, uh, feature set. And because Mono hadn't quite caught up to CLR4 yet... You had to use the CLR2 version in mono. And this is probably a big alphabet soup that doesn't really mean anything to people who aren't .NET developers, so I'm going to move on. Uh, but basically what happened is Microsoft laid off the last core team member and stopped funding the development of the Iron Ruby project right in the middle of that CLR transition, which means that there was significant amount of work that was needed to continue uh, to make Iron Ruby continue to work on the later versions of the CLR. And nobody picked up the slack. And as such, the last Iron Ruby release was in 2011. Oh, a long time ago. A very long time ago. Nobody really seems to care that it's gone, uh, except for me this week, uh, who was looking up Iron Ruby at work because I was like, hmm, I need to write a script for something. It would be nice to do it in Ruby, but if I'm on a PC, I might as well get Iron Ruby. And then I was like, oh shit, last version was released in 2011. I guess not. Uh, so <laughs> that was too bad. But but you just said that was a project funded directly by Microsoft. Yeah, they hired people who were working on this as a hobby to actually work on it. And then they laid them off like three years later. Oh, so it's, it did start as a community project, a bit like JRuby. Yeah. And but Microsoft decided to hire the key members and then just make it a Microsoft project. 
Yep. And I should also point out that there was another language, another iron language. There were three iron languages, uh, iron Python, iron Ruby, and iron scheme. Uh, and iron Python was a much more mature project with a much bigger community. So it's still alive today. Uh, there were commits like within the day when I checked earlier, uh, today. And the only downside I think is that their integration relies on visual studio 2010. So you have to use like eight year old software, uh, to continue developing Iron Python today. Uh, well, technically you don't. It's just that, like, to build Iron Python, you still need VS 2010, which is suboptimal. And their, their integration tools only work in VS 2010. But you can, I mean, it's a, it's a Python interpreter, so you can use any text editor in the world to write Iron Python, you know? But, yeah. Uh, and I tried earlier today, Iron Ruby doesn't even work on modern.net. It's like, screw this. <laughs> I'm out. Uh, so Iron Ruby is really lost to time. You can't really do it unless you go download an old version of .NET on the Microsoft website, and you really don't want to do that. Um, it's unfortunate. I think that um, so I'm, I'm trying to make little scripts for stuff to automate like the most annoying stuff at work, and I am bothered that the only scripting language that appears to exist on Windows is either PowerShell or Batch Files. Um, batch files which have not evolved significantly since the DOS era, and PowerShell, I mean, it's very powerful, but its syntax is kind of trash. So I was hoping to use something like Iron Ruby to actually uh, get that stuff done, and what's unfortunate is none of the scripting languages that you can do stuff with on Windows, other than PowerShell and batch files, are included with the system. Uh, you always have to go download it separately, which means I can't have scripts that I distribute to my coworkers without needing to also convince them to install some other programming language on their computer when I should probably be doing it in PowerShell just so they can double-click it and it runs and not doing anything. But PowerShell is really fucking hideous to write code in, which is unfortunate. So that's what I have for Iron Ruby. Are you ready to move on to Mac Ruby? Yeah, let's move to it. Okay, so Mac Ruby, as you can probably guess from the name, it's Apple's answer to Iron Ruby in many ways. Uh, it began as a project called Ruby Plus Objc, which was by Apple's Laurent Sassonetti, uh, back in late 20, uh, late 2007. But a couple months later, they rebranded it to MacRuby in March of 2008. Uh, we previously talked about something called Ruby Coco on episode 57, Evolutionary Dead End, about, uh, Mac automation technologies. And Ruby Coco is a bridge that allows the official Ruby implementation, MRI, to talk to Objective-C libraries. And what we explained on that show is it had sort of a clunky syntax because Objective-C method signatures are so much more verbose than what Ruby developers are used to. And there was bad performance because there's the overhead of object conversion between the Ruby world and the Objective-C world every time you make a call that bridges between those two things. Yeah, I think it like I think this is an example I gave you uh, in the pre-show, but this Ruby Coco is more related to Python obscene than it is to MacRuby. Yeah. It's really a bridge. MacRuby is really much more like the Iron Ruby mentality. It's not trying to be a bridge. It's trying to run directly on the Objective-C runtime. And it does so in a very particular way. So we're going to go into detail. Uh, this probably isn't going to mean much to you unless you are a Mac developer, but I think most of us are uh, in the listeners anyway, so whatever. Uh, MacRuby is Ruby, but the core types of a Ruby language have a secret double life as foundation types. So every Ruby object is a subclass of NS object. Strings are NS strings, arrays are NS arrays, hashes are NS dictionaries. Um, MacRuby makes presumptions about your code because it has increased visibility into your code that Ruby code never had, and uh, it respects Objective-C conventions. So standard Ruby properties with exposed default getters and setters are automatically understood to be IB outlets. Any Ruby method that accepts one argument called sender is understood as an IB action. So you can continue to write code that looks like Ruby code, but things that look like a certain way are going to be interpreted as IB outlets or IB actions. Because all of the objects are already Objective-C objects behind the scenes, there is no overhead when it comes to converting between the Ruby world and the Objective-C world. All objects are both at all times. Uh, there is one exception, and that is structs. Uh, so structs are not objects, therefore they need to be converted between Ruby and uh, the Cocoa world. 
but otherwise, anything that is an object, there is no conversion penalty. Ruby syntax is extended in MacRuby to support named parameters in a more natural way. Uh, this makes Objective-C method calls less awkward because there are named parameters in selectors, basically, and it looks a lot like the C-sharp named parameter syntax if you're familiar with that. And last but not least, the Ruby garbage collector is thrown out and everything is handled by the Objective-C garbage collector. Oh, so, so <laughs> I'm sure it's a spoiler, but I'm sure this project is fully dead. Too. Yes. So th- that's sort of the punchline. Uh, so I'm going to explain a little bit why we're laughing. Uh, in October of 2007, Objective-C 2.0 was announced. And on the Mac, there was garbage collection. And garbage coll- collection in general is an automated way in which the computer tries to dispose of memory that is no longer needed in batches that happen regularly. And MacRuby was developed around the same time as this feature was rolling out. So it's possible that the person writing this was an optimist that was supposing that Libato, which is the Objective-C garbage collector, would improve over time. In practice, this never really happened. And it sort of became a running gag in the Apple developer community. Like, don't use GC. Uh, even as late as 2011, some system-provided frameworks were never safe to use with garbage collection because there needed to be updates made to every framework in the system to make them clean for garbage collection, and they never got around to finishing it. Uh, while the garbage collector tried its hardest to not stop the main thread of your application so your UI would stay responsive at all times, very often it just gave up and it would lock up your application anyway, uh, which is too bad. One of the issues with garbage collection on C-based languages, or C itself, is this notion of false roots. So your garbage collector scans your application's memory space and tries to find pointers to objects that can be freed, but sometimes it just decides to misinterpret a very large number as a pointer, cleans out a whole bunch of objects that have no business being wiped from memory, and then you have a big bug in your application because a bunch of stuff that you expect is there is not there, uh, which is a problem. Uh, and this is, like, an issue in all C-based languages. Like, it's not exclusive to Objective-C, but it is a big annoyance if you're doing it in Objective-C. Um, so, automatic reference counting was announced in 2011 as an alternative means of doing less memory management manually in Objective-C applications. And a year later, garbage collection would be deprecated, clearly showing developers that ARC is the way forward for automatic memory management on Apple platforms, In 2016's macOS Sierra, the garbage collector was removed entirely, although technically MacRuby had already stopped working way back in 2013 uh, on OS X Mavericks. Because of changes in the US itself? Yeah, Uh, and mostly the Objective-C runtime has been getting, like, got a lot of updates ever since Arc, basically, leading up to the launch of Swift. Um, So those changes were not necessarily compatible with the way the MacRuby did things behind the scenes. Right, and a small aside about those updates were like after Swift got introduced, uh, this the team working on Swift was like, you know why we pushed a lot of updates on Objective C in the last few years? It's really to help us better pro uh, better program the Swift language, which was nice for all of the Objective C fan Objective C fans out there. But at the same time, uh, now it seems to uh, slowly uh, slow down, which is a bit sad, but different episode. Uh, one other thing that was sort of strange timing about MacRuby is it was announced right around the time that the iPhone SDK was being announced. And there were a lot of Ruby developers, myself included, who were salivating at the thought of having an Apple-approved Ruby implementation that could be used to develop iPhone applications. Oh, let me guess, it never supported the iPhone SDK. Especially because of garbage connection. Well, yeah, so... <laughs> uh, I should also say, MacRuby never had a huge... It never was a huge deal for Mac developers because it was more elegant and it was faster than Ruby Cocoa, but it never really enabled anything that couldn't be done with Ruby Cocoa. And so if you weren't doing anything with Ruby Cocoa to begin with, you didn't really see the point in Mac Ruby other than, well, it's better for people who are already doing this, um, which is kind of sad. Uh, so yeah, Objective-C garbage collection never came to iOS devices. Uh, it had trouble performing well on very powerful Macs, uh, so then it's probably not good enough to keep the system responsive on iOS devices, which are underpowered. Um, and especially iOS, uh, early versions of iOS prioritized responsiveness of the UI above pretty much anything else. Uh, and even today, like there, you see a big difference in how responsive the UI feels on iOS devices versus the Mac because the priorities simply aren't at the same place. 
Um, so because Garbage Collection never came to iOS, uh, MacRuby never came to the iPhone, of course. Uh, the closest we got to it unofficially on jailbroken iPhones uh, was we had Ruby running on jailbroken iPhones. In fact, I did write very brief- briefly some Ruby scripts uh, for jailbroken iPhones that you could go download on Cydia, um, but in practice, nobody really ever did. Uh, the biggest one was called Spring Roll, and it was released around the time iPhone OS 2.0 had just come out, and it was the first way to change icons for App Store apps uh, on those things without manually doing it yourself uh, by replacing the image assets and the thing. And of course, there was code signing in place, which meant as soon as you change those images, often it would break the application entirely and you would have to reinstall it anyway. So I had found a little trick that you could use to replace the image, but keep the code signing somehow intact. And uh, that's what I did in that script. And I released it. And there was another script later uh, that I released. Um, but we never got a Ruby C bridge working on jailbroken iPhones because there was something about Ruby gems in particular, which it really hated running on the iPhone. And if Ruby gems wasn't going to work, then getting Ruby C was pretty much pointless uh, to work. However, the Python and Java bridges did work fine on the iPhone. And I did use both to actually fool around with writing iOS applications before I was able to write Objective-C. So now we need to talk about the fate of MacRuby. But maybe, uh, since um, I guess you'll maybe ad- addressing that part, but you never addressed the why Apple decided to create MacRuby. Like you, you did mention it that Iron Ruby was because of making Silverlight better, uh, Silverlight better, but not Apple's per- perspective on it because it was officially an Apple project, right? It was not the way the way you're describing it here right now is it was not created by the community and then quote-unquote bought by apple it was started by apple and just always maintained by apple yeah it's very strange um of course apple being apple they never really say their motivations for anything they do right uh so you don't know why they made mac ruby uh part of me su- suspects that this was sort of their plan a for moving forward uh with a more modern programming language um like i in doing the research for this episode, I did stumble upon some of John Syracuse's uh, unforgettable Copeland 2010 uh, articles where he was arguing for more modern programming languages uh, to be to be coming to the Mac, and he mentioned Mac, the MacRuby project uh, explicitly, and I believe it was his follow-up piece to the original piece, which was like, the original piece was written in 2005, and it was like, in five years I see this nice future for Mac developers, and then he wrote a follow-up article in 2010 where he said, okay, it's five years later, what changed? And it was basically nothing. Um, except there was like this little seed of MacRuby in the background that could maybe amount to something someday. So I think it was sort of their plan A before Swift, the Swift project was born, or before they had a feeling that GC was never going to work on the Mac, that they were going to start building languages like MacRuby, which integrate heavily with... Uh, the underlying like foundation and Cocoa frameworks that you could potentially build Mac applications in more modern programming languages than Objective C. Um, I don't know this for sure, uh, and I don't think we ever will. Um, but that is my personal theory. Who knows? Maybe some of the Apple developers that were working on these projects will write a big blog post or be on podcasts uh, after the time at Apple, or just like. Who knows when they want to remem- be remembered of those projects they worked on. Well, it's funny you mentioned not being at Apple, because MacRuby development pretty much ended in 2011 when Laurent Sansonetti left Apple. Huh. Yeah. So uh, he did follow it up, however, with a spiritual successor to MacRuby, which you may have heard of, called RubyMotion. Oh, yeah. And it is based directly off of MacRuby, of course, with the GC bit sort of scraped off. Um and I, I think the fairest way to describe Ruby Motion is basically Xamarin for Ruby. So we mentioned Xamarin, uh, on an episode of quite a while back. Uh, I don't remember which one, uh, but we did have a few episodes on cross-platform, uh, development approaches. And we mentioned Xamarin on it. And Xamarin is basically, uh, it provides all of the Objective C UI frameworks in a .NET runtime. And it, basically is doing the same thing, but for Ruby. You can access all of the same classes that an Objective-C application would have access to, 
except within the Ruby language. And you can also uh, import Ruby gems and all that stuff. Um, and they encourage developers to keep a clean separation of interface-related code that is platform-specific and business logic objects. And you can reuse the business logic objects from one platform to another and keep the UI native. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, the platforms for RubyMotion are iOS, macOS, and Android, which is a strange combination because usually the macOS is sort of an outlier there because it's not a mobile platform, but whatever, it's there as well. It statically compiles down to native code uh, when you build an application uh, targeting iPhone or macOS. There is, much like Xamarin, a third... Well, I don't, I don't think it's third-party. I think it's developed by the same staff. But there is a library called Flow, which allows you to abstract out all of the platform-specific stuff and deploy one application across all three platforms. Refer to that episode about Xamarin for why we think that is a bad idea. Um, <laughs> I don't want to repeat it every time. Um, Wait, but I thought... Uh, just small aside, I thought Xamarin, uh, they only had a common UI framework and not just one app everywhere. Uh, well, the common UI framework does actually allow you, in combination with your business logic objects, to actually do deploy one app everywhere if you do. Oh, okay. Um, that's a, that's but, a small detail I missed then. But in RubyMotion and in Xamarin, that framework, which abstracts everything that is platform-specific, is optional. You can also just use the classes directly, and in fact, that is the encouraged way to use uh, RubyMotion in the documentation and the encouraged way to use Xamarin as well. Um, so a few years ago, Laurence Ancenetti sold RubyMotion uh, to another uh, contributor on the project, and now he is at Microsoft working on WebAssembly. So unfortunately, another good Ruby developer mind has been lost to the JavaScript world, and we will never be able to get him back. Um, but yeah, so that is sort of the state of MacRuby today. It is dead, much like IronRuby. JRuby is the only one that has survived uh, this thing. Oh, before you continue, is Ruby Motion still alive? Ruby Motion is still alive. Yeah, it's still very much alive. Uh, it's just owned by someone other than Lara now, but it is still actively being maintained. Oh, good to know. So yeah, I wanted to point these uh, implementations out because they are sort of unique. Um, like there are a lot of other Ruby implementations even today, but many of them do not try to be cute with another runtime. Um, the closest thing is Maglev. Maglev is a special implementation of Ruby, which runs on a Smalltalk virtual machine that is made by VMware. Um, and this is for like object persistence and, and, uh, performance reasons. It's very complicated why you would want to use Maglev. It's like, you know, if you need to use Maglev for your particular application. Um, but otherwise, like a lot of them are just, we took Ruby and tweaked a weird thing, or we took Ruby and made it scale more. And it's like, there's all of these different implementations, but these were really the most standout things because they actually were trying to deviate from pure Ruby. And this is sort of where we also dodged a bullet as the Ruby community. Because you can write JRuby that does not run on the normal Ruby uh, interpreter because you are calling Java stuff. You can write Ruby and Iron Ruby that doesn't run on normal Ruby because it calls out to .NET stuff. And you can write MacRuby that doesn't work on uh, on any other Ruby implementation because you're using NSObject methods on your Ruby objects that don't exist in other implementations. And how you define what the Ruby language is and what the Ruby standard library is becomes much more complicated when everyone is built off of different runtimes that offer different libraries and everything and the package manager situation i don't even want to think about what would have happened if there was more than just jruby to deal with it would be really complicated to just give someone a rb file and tell them how they can run it because now ruby doesn't mean anything specific anymore it could be any of these rubies and it could be any specific version of these rubies and maybe you need some third-party library installed on your system or a DLL or something. And it's not clear. Um, whereas in Ruby, you write your .rb file and you give it to any Ruby implementation and it is going to run. And I just feel like that sort of could have been a slippery slope where we could have wound up in madness. But it was also really cool to see the different approaches. Like the Silverlight script tag thing. Like I, I'm not a fan of Silverlight by any means. But, like, that was a cool innovation, at the very least, uh, that nobody else really tried to do, uh, which was really cool. Um, 
trying to make every Ruby object an NS object. Like none of the other, uh, none of the other runtimes actually tried to go that deep. Like in Iron Ruby, like yes, you can get your .NET objects and your Ruby objects to talk to each other, but it's not as native as everything is as is an NS object. You know. Uh, yeah, it could have been forced because you know the ob- the Objective-C runtime is a runtime. It's not a virtual machine like the two others. Like, so you might not have this kind of uh, common shared like machine language. I know it's not the right exact term, but like those VMs, you can your written code gets related translated into whatever bit code for. Java, and I don't know the exact name for uh, .NET, but it gets related to something that it then gets run uh, natively in uh, the VM. Compared to Objective-C, you still need to go talk directly to the runtime. So there's not that in-between layer. It's either you are using all of the Ruby stuff, or you just like base your Ruby stuff on top of the foundation of Objective-C. So I understand why they were kind of not forced, but at the same time forced to say, all the Ruby objects. And not really Ruby objects are just like Objective-C objects because of the runtime. And I mean, like, if you've done any Objective-C runtime fuckery in your career, like, it's not hard to see how they could have Im- implemented this. Like, you could just have an extension on top of all of these base classes that just implements the Ruby methods on these objects. And then your Ruby interpreter just knows how to call the Ruby alternate versions of those uh, methods when you call them. Otherwise, it defaults to the Objective-C behavior or something. Like, you can see how they made MacRuby if you're a little bit familiar with uh, the Objective-C runtime, whereas it is a much bigger leap to make as to how they implemented IronRuby or how they implemented JRuby because, like you mentioned, it, you're not dealing with the runtime directly in those cases. Um, so yeah, I understand that this episode has been quite geeky and maybe the next episode will be slightly less geeky. I don't know. Um, but thank you for coming on this trip with us because there's a lot of cool stuff in the Ruby world. And honestly, it makes me kind of sad that a lot of the Ruby world has veered off to JavaScript land where they are repeating the same mistakes that they made in the Ruby world all over again. Ruby still remains a much more elegant language than JavaScript in my, in my opinion, um, and I really like writing in it. However, there's less cool stuff I can do on Windows with Ruby now that Iron Ruby is dead. And that sucks. Good. I still have a couple of questions. Like, is, are both the Iron Ruby codebase and the Mac Ruby codebase kind of dead? Because they were kind of both developed in the time where, like, GitHub was at, as its infancy and all of the, like, let's, put it everywhere uh, and easily accessible on open source and the internet or they are more like either old style open source libraries or just like closed source stuff so it's hard for people that want to learn more and like see how they were built even if they're still cannot be run on model uh, OS's they can still learn about how they've been built. Uh, they are both on GitHub. Oh that's nice. Yeah, you can visit the Iron Languages uh, page for Iron Ruby and MacRuby, I believe is github.com slash MacRuby, but I'm not sure. Um look it up or go to MacRuby.org. Um Okay, good to know. Um and I guess you said that you wanted to do more bash stuff and I think the underlying thing that you didn't mention, but I think it's kind of implicit with this whole episode, is you're a big Ruby fan for like years. And it's a bit on a different topic still, but are all of the new changes in Windows regarding like kind of having all of the Unix-based stuff in Windows natively will help you to do more stuff in native Ruby? Oh, yeah, de- definitely. It, it would be more convenient for me to do it that way because, like, Ruby support on Windows has never been that great. It's, like, Iron Ruby actually helped in that case because... It was a .NET implementation. There were less, like, weird bugs due to C mismatches, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it could help me. However, I'm intending to make scripts that I can give to my coworkers. And, again, I'm trying to reduce the stuff that they need to install and telling them, oh, yeah, install the Linux subsystem on your Windows PC. 
I don't think that's going to fly with my coworkers. Like, I know one of them would because he's a big Linux fan, but I'm not sure everyone would. And I need everyone on board for these tools, which means that I need to use something that is really lowest amount of effort I need to ask out of my coworkers. And that is unfortunately probably going to mean PowerShell, which has a bunch of issues itself. Like PowerShell, uh, by default has a lot of security stuff, uh, has a lot of features disabled that you have to enable by typing really long commands into PowerShell and then agreeing to a really long message that warns you about how dangerous the thing you just typed is. Uh, because the, <laughs> wow, that's ever so since, ever, yeah, ever since like Excel macros happened, they have been terrified of ever letting third party codes run on Windows. Uh, so they do not want PowerShell scripts to be able to do anything, uh, unless you type really long commands first, uh, because you could accidentally be told to run a PowerShell script that deletes your entire machine. Uh, so like there's always a gap, like, um, uh, unfortunately, like I think batch scripts are ironically, like you cannot make them do anything and there is no security warning or anything when you double click on it, which is kind of scary because that is the easiest one to make. Uh, like at least PowerShell, you have to try and learn the syntax to do it. But like PowerShell is just like type your bat, your DOS commands into that file and it will run and it is not hard to do batch scripts, but it is hard to do batch scripts that actually do stuff that is useful. Uh, which is kind of a problem. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. I, w- I didn't follow too much of the news regarding this uh, Linux subsystem on Windows, but I, I kind of assumed while reading some of the announcement that it would kind of uh, come pre-installed when you have some of the development tools, whether it was Visual Studio, but I guess it's kind of a different Visual Studio install that you need to do if you want it to be enabled, which is a bit sad. I guess uh, I know Xcode is doing that. You can install Xcode and you don't have you don't need to have its command line tools. It's a different install. But my oh well. my understanding is as soon as you install something in Visual Studio that requires or that has heavy heavy dependence on Node, that's when it pulls down the Linux subsystem. Otherwise, you have to go install it via the Windows Store. Oh, okay. So it, then it, w- it wouldn't be that bad to ask your colleagues to install it if it's really from the Windows to- Store. Oh, yeah, but I mean, you still have to do it and you have to hope that Visual Studio doesn't break when you do it and stuff like that. And oh. we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> Good. So I guess Yannick will be able to put a lot of links regarding Ruby. And if you want to learn more about Ruby and its different. A way to be run on different virtual machines. You can go on our website at limitlesspossibility.net slash 83. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show and its related news on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcast, L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find myself on Twitter. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E, and you can find Yannick at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumanile. Ça va aller mieux, je pensais. Mon Dieu, ça commence mal la soirée.